0: welcome everybody we are jumping into it pretty briefly again You may have noticed we've been doing some shorter intros and outros lately that is thanks to patreon.com slash shane moss which has given me an outlet for sharing more of my personal life my views on things from interesting to silly absurd dark and everything else on what I've been calling the everything, everything podcast. You can go there if you miss uh, hearing me wandering aimlessly through the inner workings of my mind. And you can be caught up on everything that I'm doing. But the important stuff that you need to know for now is that I have a couple shows coming up in Minneapolis, and Grand Rapids, in May. More stuff. I'm just am in the middle of confirming a few Uh, summer gigs including my 20 year high school reunion going back to La Crosse, Wisconsin so I'll be doing a a show before the reunion on the 27th that might be a bad idea, it might be really weird I have no idea but more dates filling in soon I always love it when you guys can come out and support my live stand up so go to shanemoss.com and with that are we
1: yes where are we here?
0: Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with assistant professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Oklahoma, Katherine Marsky, is joining me. Catherine, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. So you are interested in um, biodiversity and and beetles, especially. We actually just had a whole dung beetle episode. Oh, fantastic episode! So I think my audience is nice and primed. For Excellent. That's a good Little beetle talk. Um, I do have. I was uh, I was looking over a few of your things, and I have uh, I have a couple questions. Um, I. Uh, the listeners and myself, we get to. I think we're going to get to learn a couple new terms today. Um, can you uh, can you explain to me what is uh, philogeography? Did I say that right?
2: Philogeography. Philo.
0: Fi- ah, philogeography. So close.
2: Very close. So to explain phylogeography, we need to zoom out a second and talk about biogeography, which is basically the geography of life. So what species are distributed where and why? And so if you think about how the world is oriented, um, in your travels around the U.S., you've probably noticed that in different places, you see different things. Like in Portland, there are lovely lush forests with a certain component of plants and animals. And down here in Oklahoma, where it's a lot drier and a lot windier, you see totally different things. And so that's biogeography. Phylogeography is a special subset of that. It's looking at the distribution of genetic diversity in space. And so within a species, particularly one of my beetles, for example, where in that species' geographical distribution is there the most genetic diversity and where is there the least and why? And so it it looks at how species' histories are related to their landscapes. Is there a large barrier that um, the species has trouble crossing, so you get genetically distinct populations on each side? Have they moved a lot in the past? So if you think about... um, What this place would have looked like 21,000 years ago, during the last ice ages, species had very different geographical distributions. So the, uh, the species which are here now, which like this kind of warm temperate climate, would have been crunched into a few... Places that we call refugia. It's basically a a climatic refuge. It's a place where the conditions were still good for them. And then all of the northern plains would have been, the parts that weren't glaciated would have been a lot colder and windier. And so there was a totally different component of species, things like the woolly mammoth. And so this movement in species past, you can actually read it in their genes. But this is important and interesting is that it tells us how communities uh, communities of species came to be in a particular place we can look at did most of the members of this community travel through time through history together or have they come individually some sooner some later and this lets us look at the evolutionary and ecological processes that allowed allowed these communities to form and also, um, looking at, uh, as populations diverge and, and uh, stop sharing genes with each other, this is one of the beginning steps in the process that leads towards speciation. And so we can look at the the drivers that cause species to arise, basically, the biodiversity to to be increased by additional species.
0: Mm. Uh, I. I actually found a, found out a new interesting thing looking over a little bit of your stuff there there was a woolly rhinoceros is that Yes that, how come that? How come you never hear about the woolly rhinoceros? That's amazing.
2: Um, the woolly rhinoceros lived mostly in uh, Eurasia, in Siberia, and um, a little bit over into Europe as well.
0: The mammoth gets all the publicity. The
2: mammoth made it across the Bering Strait, and so here in North America we find mammoth and mastodon uh, remains. We find remains of the large sloths, which would have come up from South America not so many woolly rhinoceros There was something about uh, possibly something about the environment of the land bridge of the Bering Strait that maybe made it difficult for them to cross we're not entirely sure but we have our we have our own exciting extinct species over here in North America
0: hmm. um, you so uh, people people talk a lot about climate change these mm-hmm. days it's a big deal but the the climate has uh, has always been changing um, right different slightly different factors nowadays but uh but the climate's changed you mentioned the ice age it's changed dramatically over the last 50,000 years when um a lot of uh it, usually when we talk about extinction of like mammoths and that sort I, I usually assume that it's um, that it's humans having drove, driven a lot of things to extinction. But I imagine there was a lot of... Uh, climate had a lot to do with uh, the population changes through time.
2: Right. So this has actually been a fairly hot topic over the last, I think, probably even more than 20 or so years, but particularly within the last few years. And I, it's it makes sense that it would be really interesting because this is... Um, extinction of very large, charismatic, recognizable species, which has happened in our time as humans, right? And so it makes sense that we have questions about our role in that and other biological factors that would have been taking place. Um, And it's, so my colleagues and I were interested in the role of climate in shaping the distributions of these species, and we found that um, just modeling climate and the population genetic patterns, which show what the population would, size would have been, there is a correlation between several large megafauna species that were common in the past and uh, climate change.
0: Uh, so you're talking about you're talking about the the big species getting all of the attention,
2: right? So the The globally, there has been a disappearance of megafauna species that um, with many land masses corresponds with the arrival of humans to those land masses. So in North America, we lost the mammoths, the mastodons, several of the large sloths. Um, In other places like Australia, there used to be quite large Birds, which they've lost most of. New Zealand lost the moa relatively shortly after humans arrived. Um, And then there are places, particularly Eurasia, where it's always been a little less clear whether it was humans or climate, which uh, drove some of these large species to extinction. And so my colleagues and I were interested in looking at the role of climate, and we compared that... Um, we com- we modeled species distributions through time and compared that through, with uh, population genetic signatures from ancient DNA, which is when you get DNA actually from fossilized, uh, not fossilized, from subfossil bones. So like if you imagine you find um, a mammoth bone or even in some cases a whole mammoth carcass, you can actually get some DNA from that in some circumstances. And I should say that this was done with my colleagues at the University of Copenhagen. And so we looked for a correlation between population genetic diversity, which indicates overall population size and range size, and we found that for some of the species there is a tight correlation with climate, which suggests that climate had an important role in shaping those species trajectories. Um, This was particularly the case for the musk ox and the woolly rhino, which, as you said, it's really a pity that we didn't have those here because they must have been awesome. With other species, it looks like there was a a much more balanced role between climate and humans. And then for the the charismatic woolly mammoth, um, we were unable in this study to conclusively say whether it was one or the other. Subsequent evidence has come out, a lot of people have worked on this, and it looks like even though people, particularly in the Siberian region, would have been at relatively low population numbers, Just because the woolly mammoth reproduced so slowly, it probably wouldn't have taken that much pressure Mm. to actually have an impact on their populations by hunting. And then um, a study came out within the last couple years that showed that the last populations of woolly mammoths on Rangel Island, this tiny little island north of Siberia that they would have gotten to when it was still connected by land, they went into some sort of genetic meltdown it looks like so serious inbreeding problems they were just not not doing very well and it's probably because this island was just too small to be host to very large herbivores and at that point they were extinct in lots of other places and so it's what i think the the ultimate answer is and what evidence now suggests is that it wasn't one or the other but but a combination of both but it probably happened faster with humans Hmm. so i don't think we can take either of those factors out of the picture Hmm. and so where this is then interesting for us is like oh so we have caused extinction in the past potentially so how does this compare to what's happening today and um we're in a very interesting time basically biodiversity seems to be in a major crisis right now Extinction is one of those things that happens naturally throughout the throughout the fossil record. Most species are alive for a period of time and then uh, disappear. But th- in the past, there have been these periods of mass extinction. So one example that most of us are familiar with is the, is the dinosaurs, right. and that's a it's considered a mass extinction not because the dinosaurs all disappeared, but because a whole bunch of other species disappeared with them. And it was a disaster in the sense that the it wasn't something that a species could be kind of evolutionarily prepared for right and evolutionary selection or natural selection happens relatively slowly and gradually through time and so that's why you have species which arise and then go extinct very slowly um and kind of at a regular pace but a six extinction is where something or a mass extinction is where something like that something happens that just kind of upsets that whole pattern. You have a disaster, several things disappear. the total biodiversity on the face of the earth at a given time is vastly reduced down to um, up to seventy five percent of species can disappear. There have been times when up to ninety percent of species have disappeared. and so what happens next is kind of a new. Biodiversity looks very different, so the disappearance of the dinosaurs gave way for the mammals to become much more dominant creatures than they had previously been. And then, of course, we have the birds, the, the, uh, which are also sort of dinosaurs, um, became much more prevalent. And so we, we see very different components to the biodiversity that eventually replaces what's lost in these, you could e- even say, cataclysms.
0: It's supposed to be an exciting time to do your job with uh, with kind of DNA sequencing becoming what it is today with the with the advancements and making it cheaper and everything else. Is it? I imagine you're kind of able to make new discoveries, sort of left and right nowadays. I mean, like twenty years ago, was it was it a lot much harder to do like, the sort of things that you're trying to do?
2: So one of the things that's changing is the amount of time that you spend at the lab bench. Mm-hmm. So it used to be that the process of getting your sequence was very difficult and would take would take quite a lot of work. And now the actual work that you do in the lab takes a couple days, and that's it. It's replaced by work at the com- at the computer. and um, the the way that we get uh, DNA data these days has changed, and so you need kind of a large, computational components to stitch those data back together because of the way that they're... So it used to be that we would we would isolate um, a few large fragments of DNA, and this is Sanger sequencing, and it's been around for, um, I think, about 30 years, maybe a little bit longer. And this is still something a lot of us do when we're kind of testing new species, just to see what is the baseline level of genetic diversity. And this is being replaced by genomic methods, which allow us to which allow us to sample a huge amount of the species genome and relatively the same amount of lab work. So we just get so much more information out of each of these samples. Of course, when you get all that information, you need to figure out what to do with it. And so that's, that's where a lot of the new avenues are now is, is figuring out how to process this information and search this information. And that's really fascinating. Um, and for the work that I do, figuring out how to scale this up at the population level um, is one of the kind of hot avenues right now. and so it's it is absolutely fascinating to be able to see how this works um, and see which is going to be the the technique that we settle on is the best for population genetics but but yeah it's it's a a very different ballpark than when I did my undergraduate and PhD studies.
1: Hey guys, Randy and Jason here. And whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to. Now you don't want to catch like glimpses and Uh, little snippets of like what what snippets of what your kids are listening to or anyone else. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds, but before you go drop in hundreds of bucks on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. They are amazing. I've got my Raycon earbuds. They cancel out everything. Raycon earbuds start for about a half price of the other ones, premium wireless earbuds on the market and they sound just as amazing as the top uh, audio brands you know. The newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds are their best ones yet. Jay, I love these so much. I'm using it nonstop, right? Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth playing, more bass, more compact design, gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. I like that if you have one of them in, you can just use one of them for a second. They're stylish and discreet. I love these so much. Now's the time to get a pair, the latest and the greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order by Raycon.com. Uh, slash Starburns. That's buy B U I Raycon.com, dot com slash Starburns for 15% off Raycon Wireless Earbuds. I love these earbuds so much. I know you do too. I'm all about them, man. They're they're my reach. You know what you feel when you reach for them and that's what you, the love thing you them. reach for. And that's my hike. Those are my hike earbuds. Those my are hike. my walking earbuds. Buy B-U-I-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash Starburns for 15% off. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's. So thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a 5-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just 3 bucks plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com code 8989. Enjoy!
0: How do you know when you're, when you're looking at a sample of DNA or you find, um, you find some old fossil in uh, mm-hmm. your analogue, how do you know how representative that DNA is of what the average population would have been at, at that particular moment in time in that place? How, how do you... It seems pretty complicated Mm -hmm. with the flow of genes Mm -hmm. coming in and out.
2: Yeah. That's actually, that's a really good question. So for the work that I do, we try to get good geographical coverage, so representatives of this particular beetle species from across its geographical range. And then we try to get a lot of samples within each of those populations so that we can have an idea of how representative each individual is of that regional population. and, and the inferences that we make are based upon the relative commonness or scarceness of particular genetic sequences. There are also methods for when you have the full genome of just one or two individuals to make those inferences based on different regions within that genome. And I'm not as, I'm not as familiar with those methods because I'm not using those, but a, um, a lot of people who are working with, with human genetics are... Um, at the forefront of pushing some of those methods. Because you can imagine if you find human or hominin fossil remains um, in various places, those are very difficult to get. It's just a matter of, of luck, whether you're going to find um, really exciting archaeological remains that will allow you to extract the DNA. So for someone like me, where I can just go out and collect very easily lots of beetles, mm. the techniques I use are totally different, but... Yeah, that's a very good question.
0: So a lot of your uh, a lot of your work is um, examining ecosystems in, here in in the kind of Oklahoma City ish area or, or Oklahoma in general. Is it?
2: So I have two study regions. I've been I've been doing a lot of work in New Zealand for the last few years. Um, getting back into doing the field work. And I'm trying to expand my work into a region here in Oklahoma and at the at the Arkansas border uh, called the Yawachita Mountains, which is one of the oldest mountain ranges in North America. And now to look at them, they do not look particularly mountainous. They are old and worn down, so they look kind of like low ridges almost. But this region... Um, has a really interesting environmental gradient. It's kind of the the very western edge of the eastern wet oak forest complex. So it's getting into this oak pine mixed forest, and with all these hills, there's the the warm sunny side of the hill and the cool moist side of the hill. And previous work done by Don Shepard and other of his colleagues looking at salamanders has found that there are different genetically isolated populations on each of these hills with a little bit of mixing through the valleys, but not that much. And in my just kind of looking into into this area as a potential study system, almost no genetic work has been done on insects at all in this region. Um, The initial, a lot of of the survey work was done in the 90s. So it's kind of, this potentially really interesting area that hasn't seen an extensive amount of research. It's within driving distance of several major universities. I mean, it's right there. It's not very far from the Ozarks and the Appalachians, which we know are very rich in species diversity for salamanders, for insects, for mussels, for a variety of different taxa. And so it's like, why is this area been kind of neglected and so i'm looking at it just because it's it's cool and it's right here and i can take students to it you know we can drive over there and camp and so we've started sampling some beetles um hope to be looking at genetic diversity in this region over the next couple years so previously i've worked in new zealand and um New Zealand is really interesting from a biogeographical and evolutionary standpoint because it's been isolated for 80 million years, and so evolutionarily, everything looks different on New Zealand than elsewhere.
0: How, how long was that again? 80 million. 80 million oh. years. Okay, and are our, our islands something that and that are? Would you say easier to study in your work? Um, or? So
2: islands are interesting because they're smaller. And so it's a lot easier to kind of get at how many species there are and where they came from. And some islands, like if you have an island chain, like an archipelago, you can look at how different arrival times to the different islands and how this is caused different evolutionary opportunities to be filled in different ways and they're nice and discreet it's like this is the community on this island and this is the community on this island new zealand is a little bit different from a lot of islands in that it's it's actually uh, continental in origin so it used to be attached to australia and antarctica um back when all of the southern land masses were connected together in this supercontinent called Gondwana. And so, it basically drifted apart, um, carrying, like a raft, several species on it already. So, this is very different from, say, Hawaii, where the island popped up out of the sea Mm -hmm. and was then colonized. So, New Zealand, um, it's been isolated for 80 million years. It left Gondwana before mammals reached that part of Gondwana. So... A lot of those ecological niches that are filled by mammals here, like if you think about squirrels and little creatures on the forest floor, this would have been all filled by birds, and uh, for the most part, birds there. Mm. And um, the the flowers are a lot more simple, so there aren't there aren't these really strict uh, plant pollinator relationships that you see in a lot of continental regions. And so for insects, a lot of the diversity is in beetles, and a lot of the beetle diversity is in the, the leaf litter. So the, I look at the small brown things that live in the forest floor that you have to particularly be excited about to go and look at it. <laughs> But the other thing that's exciting about New Zealand is that it's, it's small, and so it has mountain ranges and different climate types and different ecosystem types all in a relatively constrained space. So from the perspective of of a biologist, you can actually go and sample in these different places and kind of get a good picture of what's going on in the space of a few years as opposed to a few decades. Hmm. But so, yeah, so both of these systems have slightly different questions, but uh, different opportunities, and I think we'll have some interesting outcomes.
0: It's... In, in these areas where there was a where there is some sort of drift or these tectonic plate shifts mm-hmm. or whatever may have happened, is there um, is it is it kind of easy to see? So if you had a uh, you had beetles that were on kind of either side of this border, and then there's mm-hmm. this split, and there's and then these two that. Would, that Mm-hmm. the similar origin or the same origin gets split up and then, and now they uh they have a new trajectory in history is, is it um does that is that something you're looking at comparing kind of the the Beatles in new zealand to the the ones in australia or or something to understand the diversity so
2: um i'm not specifically looking at that although a lot of a lot of people are and certainly the the ancestral group of the beetles that i work with you can find their closest the closest relatives of the beetles i work with in australia and new caledonia which would have been you know close in close proximity um most of the species most of the species that are uh exist today um are much younger, of course, than this drifting off of the continent um, 80 million years ago. So most of, the, most of the beetles that I'm working with would have arisen within the last um, 3 to 10 million years. And so their history, replic- from their history, you can see much more recent dynamics, like the, the mountain chain in the central part of New Zealand is very young. And so there has been a lot of divergence of populations around this mountain chain. Um, individuals do cross, but not very often. Um, the entire flora associated with these high-altitude areas is only about 5 million years old. And so any species that actually live up above tree line are relatively young species. And so those are that's the, the temporal dynamics that I'm mostly focused on is the last... Um, two million years to the present so again it's mostly mostly ice age dynamics and uh different climate change dynamics and relatively recent landscape evolution in these places
0: what are some of the the driving factors of of change um here in oklahoma where i mean I, i think it's uh easy to understand speciation when when a mm-hmm. landmass drifts apart, mm-hmm. um, but and and you mentioned um, a mountain range where one side is mm-hmm. uh, is uh, has a different climate than mm-hmm. the other side of the mountain. So and these are these are kind of all considered islands in their in their own yeah, way, right? Definitely. And is, is there? I guess I'm not terrible. Is there like um, tornadoes or anything like that in yeah, Oklahoma so. that like create like these? these many, um, like kind of changes in the ecosystems?
2: Um, so I don't, I don't know that it has a huge impact on the ecosystems, but yes, Oklahoma is famous for its tornadoes and its wind (laughs) in general, as you probably would have experienced while driving here. Um, Oklahoma is actually fascinating from an ecological standpoint because there's a pretty stark, uh, Climatic gradient going across the state. So on the on the east, there are the last of these these oak forests, and it gets quite a lot of rain. And once you get to the to the very western part of the panhandle, you're getting to into environments that look a lot more like what you would expect to find in places like New Mexico. And so in the middle of that is this transition through these different prairie ecotypes. Um, and so we go from a fairly significant amount of rainfall similar to what you would find in the Smoky Mountains all the way to not quite desert but practically desert and everything in between and then there are all these different soil types that underlie all of that and so Oklahoma is just interesting for an ecologist because there's so many things going on and when you driving an hour and a half in either direction from Norman you see a very different thing than if you had gone the other direction and so I'm relatively new to this area myself so I'm I'm trying to kind of get a feel for what these different ecosystems are but it's it's a really interesting area because there's so much difference there's so much change over small space and um these, some of these uh, ecosystem types are relatively young, like again, um, dating only back to the last uh, glaciation and more recently. so it's it's a pretty dynamic environment and I think people't don't necessarily think of, the flatter states um which don't have striking features like mountains as being as interesting but actually there is really a lot going on here from a biodiversity and ecological perspective
0: Uh, does studying a a younger species make um make the job a lot more complicated because is there still it, does a younger species have more change going on within its DNA than than say a more established species something that's been around for a while or is it a case by case?
2: I think it's a case by case I see So occasionally uh, occasionally people will happen upon situations where it's really hard to to categorize based on the genetic, Diversity that this is species A and this is species B. And so, some people have found situations where there may actually be speciation taking place. Mm-hmm. And that gives them a variety of questions to ask. Like, is it, are there, do they seem to be diversifying in different environments? Is it just that there's a geographic barrier? Like, what is causing this potential separation? And, um, why is gene flow continuing amongst species that appear to be becoming different species and so that's one of the things about phylogeography is that it it has allowed people to learn a lot more about the speciation process and that it's actually a lot messier than we always thought that species don't just separate neatly into two species some of them continue to share genes for a long time even though the animals themselves look quite different. And so it's been, I think it's the phylogeography was sort of named as a discipline in the late 80s. And since then it has contributed a lot to the way that we think about evolutionary questions and what makes a species a species and when do we cut it off and say, okay, this is no longer species A, now we're looking at a different species.
0: It seems like with um, with biodiversity and phylogeography, it seems like these are um, pretty uh, ambitious fields to get into. In in terms of, it it, uh, seems like they're very interdisciplinary. There's there's a number of different factors that you're having to. What are what are the kind of different disciplines that you're having to consider?
2: So um, an obvious one would be climatology, because we we use climate models to try to predict what happened in the past. Um, even within the discipline of bio- biogeography, there are a number of different flavors of ecologists. Some people work on mathematical models of, of um, diversity patterns. Some people work on evolutionary trees but also thinking about geologists to better understand the landscapes you're working in, computer scientists as we deal with different types of sequencing data, but also uh, just dealing with all of the biodiversity data that have been generated over the last 20 to 30 years of interested study. So most scientific research is publicly funded by different um, government agencies in different countries. And one of the stipulations for that funding is that the data belong to the public. So they're published, right? So we now have 30 years of biodiversity science data that can be mined and people can look at different patterns and And so the computational aspect, um, that's another group of people that we're collaborating with now that maybe 10 years ago we're not, you know, we were not necessarily looking at them as natural collaborators. So yeah, I would say that that biogeography and phylogeography see collaborations across across the scientific disciplines basically because, we are now pulling in different types of information from all over the place. And that's really what makes it fun and interesting, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know for my, I'm not interested in sitting at my desk working by myself. The thing that makes science cool for me is getting to talk to all these different people about their topics and thinking, man, if we put that together with what I'm thinking about, that's a totally different way to answer this question.
0: So, so let's uh, let's talk about beetles first off. Why why the interest in in beetles um, in the first place? Why uh, why examining that specific part of this field?
2: Beetles are the little things that run the world. There are more species of beetle than anything else that we know of, and there are. So many beetles that are left to be described, and they are in every terrestrial environment and they're doing interesting things everywhere. And it's just there, there's just so much room for discovery that if you want to find something new, that's a good place to start. Mm. So, um, the US and Canada north of Mexico have around 25,000 species of beetles that are described. New Zealand has 10,000 species of beetles. Um, If you move to the tropics, there are going to be significantly more than that, but still they they don't even know how many beetles there are. And so it's just, it's just, there's really, they're everywhere. Like everywhere you look, you'll find them. And yet there's so much that we don't know about them. Like if you consider species like birds, particularly, which are um, easy to observe, they're also beautiful in color and do interesting things and they're everywhere. But um, we know so much more about them. We know where all the species occur. We know how they reproduce, a little bit about their ecological niches. We know their evolutionary histories and how they're related to each other For For insects and other uh, invertebrates, we are still trying to put names on things and quantify what we don't know, and we will be doing that for a long time to come. And so it's just, and also they're adorable. I mean, if you, you know, if you actually take a close look at them, they have a Really? These, yes. I've they, never heard anyone describe beetles as No, adorable. they have. I mean, their feet are amazing. They've they've got these little pads on the bottom of their feet with little bristles on them so uh-huh. they can walk. And I mean, when you, when you actually get one under a microscope and start looking at its, its little structures, I mean, they, they are just so interesting and intricate and then you look at the next one and it's interesting and intricate in a totally different way and it's i mean they're just they're just kind of mind blowing so when yeah if you ever you have a chance to just look at some under a microscope or look at really nice macro photography examples of beetles i mean they've just they're just gorgeous
0: hmm.
2: and unlike other organisms you can actually pick a beetle up or pick an insect up and look at it and hold it in your hand and kind of admire it and then put it down. And you can imagine that you would get in a lot of trouble if you tried to do that with birds and other things, um, which might try to bite you. And so as as something that you can be enthusiastic about, you can actually put your hands on them and get up close and take a look at them and it doesn't hurt them and you don't get in trouble and it's, you know, it's just it's just fun. They're accessible.
0: Hmm. So when you when you say there's so much we don't know about about beetles, what what don't we know? What are you what are you uh, what are you searching for? What kind of questions are you ans- asking?
2: So, the for a lot of species, we're just still trying to decide how many species they are, and it, given this particular beetle, what what is it? Is it a different species from something else? And so you would imagine that that means that we don't know the evolutionary relationships among groups as well for many groups of beetles, particularly the little brown ones, which is what I especially like. Um, And it, it makes it harder to ask the types of questions that you need a lot of information for. So what are the major diversity drivers um, amongst recent diversification and beetles um, what how have beetles responded to things like climate change? How vulnerable are they to environmental change? And so this is one of those things that um, people are starting to realize that insects are maybe not doing that well right now. There have been several species several studies within the last, five-ish years that show significant reductions in population size of insects. There have been two out of Germany recently where they show um, they've been trapping flying insects, so like butterflies and moths and flies, over in the same landscapes over 25 years, and they're finding that now their traps have a huge amount less
0: Mm.
2: of total weight of insects than they did 25 years ago um these
0: are starting to get a little attention
2: these are not really not doing well Mm -hmm. um and it has to do the native bees are really struggling with um land use change the honeybees are not doing so well with herbicides it looks like or neonicotinoid um sprays that's actually a pesticide but there's also a report uh by out by the eu that a fifth of saproxilic beetle species this is the beetles that live in dead wood and eat fungi so in a component of native forests um a fifth of those beetles in europe are not doing so well um aquatic organisms uh aquatic insect species like dragonflies and um, not not so much dragonflies but mayflies and caddisflies um, are indicators of good water quality, and they're struggling in a lot of places. And so, we're not seeing extinction in terms of the disappearance of species, but we're seeing that a lot of once common species are not at the numbers that they used to be, and that's that's fairly alarming mm-hmm. because insects basically run the world. They're involved in nutrient cycling. They're involved in plant pollination. They feed the birds and the other species that we really enjoy to look at, and so is this is definitely a cause for concern.
0: Insects are kind of the canaries of, yes. of the world,
2: yeah. And so, what what we're what I'm interested in is understanding how environmental change has affected some of these species in the past. Mm-hmm. So I can look at these ecological questions that I was describing to you earlier, but it also provides an important bit of baseline information, like how easy is it to collect these species? How much genetic diversity does a population have? And we can then go back 10 or 20 years from now, if necessary, and look, have, have we seen change? Has, has, has there been a significant amount of change over this period? If so, what do we think caused this change? Um, is there anything that we can do to try to fix this problem? And so um, we've seen a lot of long-term studies of insects and other species that show how species have changed in numbers and abundance or move their geographic distributions through time. And these are invaluable studies that, that give us these different windows into time. And um, I would like for my research to be set up in such a way that while focusing on these ecological and evolutionary questions i can also provide that baseline data that we can go back to and replicate down the road if we need it
0: so so what are uh uh, what are some of the things causing these alarms when you talk about water quality is this is this human factors happening or is this
2: a lot of it is human factors so so with insects in particular um it has to do with Changes in uh, agricultural landscapes, and some cases, um, land use intensification in different parts of the world, um, the sprays that we put on our our crops, and how much of it runs off into the surrounding environments, and and like I have to, I have to be absolutely clear, I am not anti-agriculture, right? I am from Iowa, you know, I have family that farm. This is a really important thing. But um, there are different ways that we could potentially try to do some of these things in, in a way that's slightly more in tune with the environment. We could leave habitat strips. We could potentially um, potentially reduce the amount of sprays we use. What are habitat strips? Um, just make sure that there are little bits of native habitat left mm. in these agricultural oh, landscapes. See. Right. So thinking about, um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I was mostly cornfields. But when you go into these, my um, parents
0: are from Iowa. Okay. So I know. Yeah. I am. yeah. So
2: when you go, but when you go into these rivers or uh, around the rivers are these beautiful little forest patches. And and that's often where you find natures and these these little tucked away places that are, are harder to do, harder to do agriculture in or have been set aside because they're aesthetically pleasing and you just see so much life even in these little roadside turnouts by rivers and so just making sure that we continue to have these little habitat reservoirs in in different areas um is an important start but also monitoring you know i think i think insects are one of those things that are so ubiquitous that that we just don't worry about them they're they're like the furniture but actually keeping an eye on some of these things that are that are common supposedly common um finger quotes common Mm. and just make sure they stay common or check for changes in their numbers through time just so we have we actually have an idea of what's going on in the environment around us
0: here's something that i thought was interesting when you're talking you you said the, the little brown beetles mm-hmm. they're your they're, they're your favorite you say you you have a favorite beetle do you have a do you have beetles that you like dislike like oh I hate this species of, uh, that, that beetle that beetle's a real jerk what what is it what is it about a particular beetle that you have a that you have a fondness for is so it their I cute think feet? It's
2: they so all beetles have really cute feet okay. I think it's just that they're secret. Mm-hmm. And so, so I collect the beetles that I work with by rolling over dead logs and looking at the bit of fungus on the underneath of that. And I think it, it, they're there, like anybody could find them, <laughs> but nobody's looking for them. And so I think it's, I think it's, it's kind of this thing that I, I like because I'm finding out the secret. So I'm not crazy about the beetles that end up in your house in large numbers, like the the lady the ladybugs and um around here for some reason we get goldenrod beetles in the spring and i've noticed they're starting to appear in the corners of the houses so i'm not crazy about things like that but i wouldn't say there are any beetles that i hate i mean i would not go and pick up the ones that feed on carrion or dung Mm -hmm. with the enthusiasm that i pick up the ones that live on dead wood and leaves but you know i don't mind them
0: Sure. So, so you, uh, it, you, you think the, the, um, the, the, the ladybug gets, gets too much play. And they're, they're, they're the famous ones. They they're, are,
2: they are famous, but I mean, it's overrated, huh? When, when it's week two of vacuuming them off your ceiling, I can understand being a little irritated by them.
0: <laughs> so, so what, what's influencing a, a beetle's life and, and some of the their evolutionary uh, trajectory and some of their, uh, the drivers of their diversity have temperature, plant life, weather, seasons. What, how many in the area here in Oklahoma that you're studying, how many different species are there and what are the kind of the influences in this particular region that you're looking at?
2: So I don't actually know how many species are in this region and I think it's because I'm new to this region. But um they like anything else they need they need places to eat and places to live. And so different different beetles and insects in general have different temperature tolerances and so at the broader scale that'll um The the temperatures they can tolerate, particularly overwintering temperatures, and where they do that, like do they have a place that they can hide out or burrow into, determines where they live. Um, A lot of insects are associated with flowers, and so if we're looking at deep in evolutionary time, the diversification of insects is probably related to the diversification of flowering plants. And so anywhere that you have... A higher diversity of plant species you're probably going to have more different kinds of insects mm-hmm. as well um, and some of the beetle species that I work with live on fungus in the woods and so what they need is um, a nice bed of leaf litter and they need places where moisture stays long enough that the fungus can grow and they can live out their life cycle on it so it a whole bunch of Different factors, um, going from the the local scale of what's happening in your local forest, all the way up to the continental scale, determine the diversity of species and and where they're found. But in general, the more different types of environments there are, the more different types of species there are. And for insects, the more interesting plants and little tiny pockets of habitat in an environment, the more insects you're going to have. So you could have, you know, a sandy bank. With um, really colorful tiger beetles running around on it next to a river. And in that river, there might be um, different beetles that live in the riffles um, that eat the different. Uh, different microorganisms and algae and things in the river or a- actively hunt other species and then um, if you imagine going up that sandy bank and eventually you get into the forest there's going to be a whole bunch of different types of beetles in the forests that are up in the up in the tree canopy and in the bushes and in the flowering plants and and the bark and down on the on the dead trees and dead uh, organisms in the forest floor so Oklahoma is one of the places where the American burying beetle lives, which is an endangered species, and that eats small carrion. So they do, the insects, and in particular the beetles, are doing just about everything it's possible to do in an environment, and so that's that's why there are so many of them, and they're so broadly distributed, and why i think they're so worthy of study why
0: what is their what is the role that they're playing in ecosystems we talked when we were talking about dung beetles we Mm -hmm. kind of talked about what happens when um when you don't have something happens you don't have dung beetles around and and you have these uh you know cow patties piling up everywhere and that becomes an issue what what um what is what's the importance of of the beetles that you're looking at
2: so they're probably involved in nutrient cycling just because they're part of the decompositional process for um, dead wood and forests and again this is one of those things where not that much like I don't think there have been a lot of experiments although there is a group in Germany that's doing some cool experiments on manipulating beetle communities and forest types but it's it you know, based on where they're found, they're probably pretty important in nutrient cycling in forest ecosystems. And they may be important in um, helping with fungal dispersal. And I mean, this is totally hand wavy, right? This is like just kind of the sorts of stuff that I think about when I'm out in the forest. And probably somebody is actually working on these questions, um, but I don't know the answer. But yeah, they're probably important in a lot of these small things that we don't necessarily see but what's considered part of the brown food web which is how stuff decomposes so that we have nutrient cycling Mm. so cleaning up the ecosystem in different ways those are the beetles that i work on other ones will be important in pollination and you know things more associated with flowers so it depends on where they live
0: Okay, so I, I might uh, as we wrap up here, I might be putting you on the spot a little bit here. If, if people want to learn a little more about, um, say, biogeography, paleogeography, is there is there a pop science book out there that that oh, you geez. recommend for people? Say, I was worried I was gonna. You don't hear a lot about uh, the 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 new hot pop science biogeography uh, out there. So- anything that inspired you.
2: So I'm a little bit weird in that I don't read a lot of pop science. No, that's—I mean, you're
0: you're an actual scientist, so that's that's, that's—I think that's common.
2: But thinking about um, books that specifically deal with biogeography, Mm -hmm. um, probably some of the books by David Quammen, Mm. and I think how do you spell that? uh, Q U A M M E N, Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm totally crashing on the title that's okay Uh, but yeah he he writes a lot of books that are kind of about biogeographic patterns broader broadly scaled and and they tend to be really well enjoyed people really like them but also um i think i would be remiss if i didn't mention eo wilson who Mm -hmm. is an ecologist he's uh he's in his 80s he's still publishing on biodiversity issues and he's kind of shifted from well he he co-wrote some of the really important theories in ecology island biodiversity theory Um, he's
0: one of the legends he
2: is one of the legends but he's also very active in conservation work and um communicating to people about the importance of biodiversity conservation and so his books also tend to be very well written and very accessible and enjoyed by a lot of people outside the sciences as well as Folks like me who are actually working in the sciences, and so so either of those two authors would I think would be great places to look. Awesome,
0: and I have each week I have my guests uh, kind of plug a nonprofit of their mm-hmm. choice. And which which one did you pick?
2: I picked the National Park Foundation, uh, which is the official charity of the National Park Service. And so I was thinking about there are a lot of really great conservation organizations doing really excellent conservation work, but I was thinking about. The national parks in particular, because I'm guessing a lot of the people who listen to your podcast didn't get into science in the first place by listening to a lot of facts. And so the people that I know who are excited about nature can trace that back to experiences that they've had in nature. And the national parks in the United States are just phenomenal. I mean, they, they... this is, this is a very, very special thing that we have that people come from around the world to look at. And so the National Parks Foundation helps the National Park Service um, put together programs in the parks to get people out there learning about things, enjoying nature, and providing opportunities for people to have the types of experiences that will make them interested in nature and interested in conserving nature.
0: That sounds fantastic. Uh, who doesn't like parks
2: absolutely
0: (laughs) all right well thank you Catherine, so much for joining me thank you
2: it's been a pleasure
0: yeah thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week Next week on the podcast, what a fantastic guest. Especially, this is always fun when I can have someone on that's into... Because uh, we're going to be talking about um, about guns a bit uh, next week. I'm not a big gun guy myself. I, you know, whatever. I, I know people, people with their arguments, constitutional rights, and they got to be prepared for government tyranny and blah, blah, blah. I just think they're a little silly. I grew up around a lot of hunters and... Uh, I've used guns I've hunted you know whatever I just I think they're they're a hair silly uh, and, and that's that's uh, kind of the nicest thing um, that I have to say about guns but my guest next week big into guns loves them uh, loves guns loves security um, uh, loves uh, law enforcement and and he he's studies how to improve uh, law enforcement training, uh, how to make better decisions in stressful situations, does uh, test people on on gun safety, he was a gun safety instructor for a while, and just a really interesting dude, and really fascinating, and I, I learned... I learned so much, and we had some good laughs, too. So I think you're really going to enjoy uh, enjoy next week's. It's always nice when I when I have someone uh, into something that uh, I'm not necessarily into. Um, I, I feel like it's a good opportunity for me to learn, and I think you guys will as well. So I uh, hope you enjoy um, the podcast as much as I like making them. Um, thanks for all the reviews and ratings on iTunes and everything. Thanks for spreading the word to your friends and uh, and not your enemies. Sometimes people say enemies too, but uh, you know maybe maybe keep it away from your enemies. Maybe um, maybe just form like a coalition of uh, of allies um, to all listen to the Here We Are podcast together and. Uh, and learn together, and improve, um, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, learn valuable skills that will improve your lives, and then you're going to be able to, uh, hopefully, outsmart uh, your enemies, maybe, maybe at least be a little more interesting in conversations, maybe not be as boring as your enemies, yeah, so, keep it from them, don't don't tell them about the show, but, Thank you for uh, spreading the word to your friends and family. Thanks for the iTunes reviews. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Music this week by Sam Goodwill. Special thanks to Jimmy Fro with the Jimmy Fro Podcast for doing such a wonderful sound mixing job and editing job on this podcast and for introducing me to all sorts of cool indie music on his podcast, the Jimmy Fro Podcast. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.
1: Uh Seinfeld was was on an island and he was blowing <laughs> Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like?
0: <laughs> it might go something like this.
2: Oh, Mister Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mister Seinfeld, I'd love
1: having you.